The following podcast contains explicit language. So I want to tell you about an interesting turn of events that led to today's episode. During our live show in L.A. this summer, you might remember that I had this idea to invite two listeners, two total strangers, up on stage to make out. guy from that makeout, Luke. He's 26 years old. He has this L.A. surfer guy look. He rolls up his pants like capris. He has blonde hair that's always a little messy. Him volunteering for the makeout that day, it's actually classic Luke. No men were raising their hands, and I had gone to this event with my roommate, and she looked at me and she literally said, Luke, you're always this guy. Not that I always get up on stage to make out with people, but that I'm always the one that like volunteers to put myself in whatever kind of situation. And Luke's live-in-the-moment personality, it's fun to be around. So we became friends, and then I came to learn that he's a documentary filmmaker. He just made a feature-length film about his friend Gabe, who lived with muscular dystrophy. It's really good. There's this epic road trip scene where Gabe and a bunch of his caretakers, they all pile in a van to Lollapalooza. They go get beignets in New Orleans. They head out to Vegas to go clubbing. Next stop, Vegas. What happens in Vegas? It's going to be fun. (laughs) Here's Luke's friend Gabe the next morning after that night in Vegas. And he's kind of hard to understand, so I'll repeat a few lines. Somebody climbed to my bed. Somebody climbed into my bed. Not just anybody. Not just anybody. Luke. Luke is giggling off camera, and Gabe is making a face like, last night was crazy. So Luke told me I should really do an episode about someone who's been dating with a disability. And I instantly knew I wanted him to do it. I knew he had this friend, Brian Chow. Brian is 27 years old and lives in St. Louis. And the two became friends at Washington University, where Brian got his undergraduate and master's degree in accounting. He now runs a nonprofit. So even though these two have been friends for years, there are some things that they just don't talk about. And sometimes a microphone can help with that. So we set them up in a studio, and the conversation they're about to have is honest and open, and I found it really helpful for my own dating life. You're going to hear why. So I'm going to duck out now. I hope you enjoy. I'll let Luke take it from here. Since the content of this interview is going to revolve around uh, the fact that you have a disability, I'd also like you to explain a little bit what, what type of disability do you have, and what is the nature of that condition? You didn't want to keep that for the surprise ending. <laughs> uh, so I was born with a form of muscular dystrophy. For listeners who may not be as familiar, there are lots of different kinds of muscular dystrophy, including like ALS, which was prominently featured in the Ice Bucket Challenge a few years ago, to Duchenne muscular dystrophy, which only affects boys in their youth and everything, and is a progressive disorder that historically is life-limiting to around the time you're 20 or 25. Mine is a very rare kind that it's kind of like winning the lottery if you have muscular dystrophy. It doesn't get worse. I've had it since birth, but for the most part, since my body grew more than my muscles grew about the time I was 
eight or ten years old. I've used a wheelchair. That's really the only thing that affects my life is just the mobility and, you know, strength challenges that I have day in and day out. Um, how does that affect your day-to-day activity? What are some things that you have to use adaptations for? So day-to-day, because I use a wheelchair, you know, I can't even get out of bed by myself. Nonetheless, you know, use the restroom, get in on the toilet. I can't stand up. I can't walk. can't really even transfer from, from one sitting position to another by myself. So I employ a whole team of personal care attendants who are undergraduate and graduate students in St. Louis's wide array of uh, universities and colleges and have them kind of help me multiple times a day each morning when I get up and need to get ready and take a shower and do all the stuff that you do in the morning and make a lunch for work and get going and everything like that. And then I'm on my own for the work day, going into the office. I drive my own car, which I have adaptive equipment in my vehicle so I can drive with a joystick. Then I have, you know, attendants that help me run errands or go to appointments and also attendants that help me, you know, go to bed at night and kind of all the stuff that's, you know, required of that. They also take care of all the chores of the house, like laundry and cleaning. So that's also nice to get rid of that. I will add that it's very impressive, or at least initially, the first time I saw you driving your big minivan, the way that you whipped the it man, around the using man van, please. The, the man van, whipping it around using the joystick was pretty sweet. Cool. So now I'm interested in hearing about how your your relation your personal relationship to your disability might have changed over time, as far as how where it plays in your identity. Sure. You know. Um, Growing up, I was the fifth of six kids, so was around, you know, a lot of people my age, both younger and older. And for me, it was just a very normal thing for me to have a disability. But at the same time, you know, I knew I was different. And especially that occurred as my little sister started to grow up and be able to do more things than me. You know, she was able to drive her pink Barbie themed, you know, tricycle which I could also ride at the same time. But by the time she moved on and was able to ride without the, you know, training wheels, all of a sudden I couldn't ride her bike anymore. And so I think, you know, that was at an early age, but that was probably the first time that I realized that I was different in a way. But at the same time, I never really thought of myself as somebody that was disabled. I really don't like the term disabled. In fact, you know, today I will use, I have a disability. It's not all that I am. It's a part of what I am. And that's really the mindset I had all my life. And in a way, I think that was a way for me to mentally move beyond my disability and not have it hold me back. But it also meant that I had it around, you know, in a dark corner of my mind at all times. Growing up in adolescence and especially throughout college, you learned that my disability was really much more of a positive piece of who I am. It's not that it needed to define me necessarily. But it wasn't something that, should, you know, I should hide and try and keep away. Because if you look at me, it's pretty clear that I have something going on just by the fact that I have a wheelchair. It'd be stupid not to, you know, acknowledge it. And I think that's just a, you know, bout of confidence that comes as you grow and develop and kind of go throughout, you know, your social experiences and everything. And I was very fortunate to have a family that didn't necessarily think that my disability meant I should be treated any differently or should get special treatment. I was expected to do the chores in the family. I was expected to do well in school and be involved in this and that. And 
they always knew that I was going to go to college and get a good job and everything like that. So there was no question that I was going to follow the footsteps that, you know, every mom and dad have in their expectations for their kids and everything like that. So I think that was something that really allowed me to get so far in my life without really thinking about my disability. Yeah. So this is ultimately a podcast that is about dating culture. And so I want to get into that with you and start with something that we've talked about a little bit in the past, and that is the assumption that a lot of people probably have when they meet somebody in a wheelchair, which is that maybe you're only interested in dating someone else in a wheelchair. Is that the case for you? If so, could you kind of, you know, could you talk me through? Certainly not the case for me. You know, there's enough challenges myself trying to date an able-bodied person, trying to make that work. I can't exactly imagine how uh, interesting or not troublesome, but the added level of difficulties that would be involved dating another person in like circumstances to myself. You know, when it comes to friendships or relationships or anything that I have, I like to think just like anybody else that uh, you have complementary skills. And, you know, together you make, you know, you're stronger at everything. I have a lot of skills, non-physical, that I think are pretty advantageous that if I have an able-bodied person, we may not be two people combined together, but we're at least one and a half or 1.75. So we can move ahead just as well as the next guy. It's a good way of putting it. A lot of times, even outside the disability community, there's an assumption that people tend to date people that are similar to themselves. For you, where that's not necessarily the case, how do you overcome that assumption? What are some of the ways that we can combat that kind of naivete? Well, I think the assumption really here, Luke, is not that people assume that people date, you know, individuals of that are similar to themselves. The larger issue at hand is that people with physical disabilities especially are thought of as asexual. You know, they just don't even think about somebody as, you know, they see them with a wheelchair. Obviously, there are challenges with, you know, intimacy in a relationship and everything being a very physical thing. How do they figure out how to make that work? Well, if you're not familiar with disability or don't know anybody with a disability, you're just not going to dive into that deep enough to think, oh, yeah, that's how that could work or something like that. You're just going to think, oh, yeah, they probably can't. So being, you know, viewed as asexual, there's also kind of a... There's a non-romantic, a non-relationship kind of thing associated with people with disabilities, I would say, within the able-bodied community. I think that's something that's changing, at least a little bit. certainly has to do with your own personal mindset if you have a disability. But I think just as we've seen our culture become more accommodating of people of different sexual orientations and seeking more diversity... In general, I think the next big thing here that I'm seeing recognized is kind of the acceptance of people with disabilities. Yeah, I want to talk about this sort of this desexualization of people with disabilities and ways that we can expose this as or, or what are what are ways that that we can break this stereotype? Well, I certainly don't think that I have all the answers to this. I can just talk about my own experience, and I think it is a lot of just putting yourself out there. I don't think that 
any one person can just change the entire perspective of, you know, what people have of, you know, people with disabilities. But I'll give you an example. It even comes down to your relationship with the medical community and your team of physicians or anything. I can tell you that, you know, from the time I was a adolescent kid going through puberty to, you know, graduating from high school, going into college to now even being, you know, in my mid to late 20s, seeing pediatricians and, you know, now adult internists and everything like that. I have never had a doctor ask me about my sexual health. Wow. Yeah. That's terrifying, kind of. Yeah, it is. I didn't know that. That's insane. Yeah. Be- and you think that's because they also assume that you're a non-sexually active or non-sexual person? I mean, you have to believe it. There are times where my brother and I have had the same doctor or something. Now, my brother's nine years older than me, so we've gone through different stages of life at different times. But that's just a natural question for your physician to ask you. I've, you know, asked other people and everything like that and confirmed that they're asked those questions. I'm not. Yeah. And it's like if your physician isn't bringing it up with you, then it's not surprising that other people aren't bringing it up with you either. If, you know, if it's some level of like awkwardness or. It really can mess with you mentally. It really can. It makes you question those things about yourself. And I think that just goes to talk to how you know, big of a deal this is, the desexualization of people with disabilities. Totally. All right. I want to get more personal now, less broad, and and talk about your romantic history. So we'll start as basic as it gets. Do you remember the first time that you had a crush on someone? Yeah, I would say so. Real crush, probably actually not until late high school or even college, which I know is probably considered late by a lot. But I think in my going through the process of growing up and adolescence and becoming an adult and everything, I realized that, you know, my physical limitations and where I was in my life and everything kept me from being as independent or doing all the things that I wanted to do. So I don't know if that kind of really just shut off that part of being interested in potential person here or there or not, but really it hasn't been a thing until later in the adolescent period of my life. Well, and so that's interesting because maybe that kind of ties into the assumption that other people have that, oh, if you, you know, hearing that from you right now, like you didn't think about it or you suppressed it in some way for a period of time because it didn't seem as available to you. Mm -hmm. And so that's maybe that ties into the assumption that others have that if it's not available to you, then it's not something that you want or something that you think about. Yeah. Okay. So what happened with that crush? Was there a, did did you tell them that you had a crush on them? I mean, I think like most first crushes and everything, you never go for it, right? It's just something in your mind, you know, over time. There have been additional ones and everything like that. And this may be kind of a boring thing to think about, but I made a decision kind of maybe around the time I was late in high school, early in college, that I didn't really want to pursue anything serious until the point in time where I had gotten, you know, my degrees so I could become employed, so I could be somebody that supports myself, that can afford to live on my, you know, my own and have a system in place that made me completely independent. 
for me, that meant, you know, by the time I was done with grad school at 23 or 24, I finally had a job. And then once I had the job, you know, I could finally afford to live someplace on my own and, you know, provide that residence and everything for me. And then also throughout the all those years, I was developing a system of personal care attendance that allowed me to do anything that I wanted to do when I wanted to do it. And it's really just recently in the last year or two that all of this has come together for the most part, where I'm, I have the confidence in my mind that I don't have to worry about if I have a crush on somebody or if I'm interested or something happens one way or another, would that person ever have to wonder themselves, you know, how is this going to work? Because they know I can support myself. They know that I can do anything I want to do and go anywhere where I want to go on my own and everything. And I don't think until you really have those things taken care of, in my mind at least, I didn't want to pursue something. I didn't want to be seen as a burden on anybody. And I feel like by getting to that point, all the X's against having somebody with a disability, you know, being in a relationship with somebody with a disability are kind of out the door. Yeah. Well, I can't wait till I get to that point, Brian. <laughs> and I I'm a little bit too logical of a thinker I know too for, you know, romance and relationships, but in my mind it's made sense to have all those things in play. No, I think I admire that practicality, especially because all those levels of stability that you've created for yourself in your life are ones that have hindered my ability to have relationships in the past, so I understand that approach. I think it makes a lot of sense. Okay, now I want to move from first crush to kiss. Mm -hmm. Is there a story behind your first kiss or a kiss? You know, I would say usually when these milestones have happened in my life, so to speak, granted they were later, they also usually ended up being under the influence of alcohol and coming on pretty quickly. And uh, nothing that is so drawn out or, you know, is a romantic, you know, movie-style story by any means. But I guess you could probably put some of this in movies. But one of the uh, first kisses that I think I know what you're real, or, you know, talking about is when we were in Las Vegas a couple of years ago and... We were at some Calvin Harris show at the Caesars Palace, and all of a sudden, for whatever reason, this girl comes up to me and just lays on me for about 90 seconds, just full-on making out. And that was certainly something. I mean, that trip was... When you're doing eight days in Vegas, a lot of stuff happens. But I think that was the first time where I was around a lot of friends that you know, it kind of was like a wake-up call to them. And being around, you know, having something like that witnessed... But that was certainly something that I think changed the perspective my friends had on, you know, being somebody with a disability and kind of launching this conversation and got us to a point where kind of as a team goal, it was, all right, what else can we do here? You know, it involved going out more and doing this and doing that. And, you know, it wasn't necessarily before that I was a, you know, hermit living in my own home, but... It certainly just changed the group dynamic of going out and being, you know, having those conversations. 
I appreciate you allowing what happened in Vegas to leave Vegas, this one instance. It was kind of a turning point, I think, in the in the dynamic and the approach that we took when we went out. I will also add, though, that I don't know if she came up to you as much as you went up to her and started dancing. You kind of got in this in this zone for a while where, like, when we would go out, you just choose someone and go up to them and start dancing and get their attention and... Actually, I think the Vegas experience might have been the first time, and then you're like, wow, this this seems to work. With a little bit of liquid courage, I've become quite the uh, outgoing guy. You know, people are always interested in the guy in the wheelchair that's going against the norm. So it has its benefits yeah. in addition to handicap parking. Even just navigating the club scene with your wheelchair was was pretty – I mean, we were definitely a conspicuous group with our, like – somebody leading with a flashlight and I think you were in a manual chair that night too, right? That might have been, yeah. Yeah, and then we had to carry you down a couple steps of stairs to get to the table service and it was pretty epic. A memorable night for sure. Yeah. Um ended in a hot tub too. It did, indeed. Uh, did you have something else you were going to say? I mean, I won't talk more about the hot tub because I don't want to embarrass you by any means, <laughs> but uh you know, another good story that's interesting being the disabled guy in a club-type setting. This was another experience where you might have already been kicked out by this point. I don't know. Uh, but we were in the Grove at one of our favorite places here in St. Louis. I think I was sneaking to the door to try to get you back in through the back door. And in the midst of going that way, all of a sudden I get kind of grabbed by this blonde girl and just start, again, making out for 30, 60, 90 seconds or whatever it is. And in the midst of this, she stops and says, I probably shouldn't do this. My boyfriend's right over there. And then just says, screw it, and keeps going and everything. And I'm like, eh, probably shouldn't do that. But at the same time, who's going to beat up the kid in the wheelchair? I don't know. But <laughs> So that that's a funny comment because it, it makes me wonder, have you ever sort of taken advantage of the fact that you're in a wheelchair to push boundaries. I mean, I guess that's an example, but like boundaries that other people might not be able to get away with. It's tough to tell just because people have their different comfort levels and everything like that. But, you know, I think there is probably, in fact, I know for a fact, there are a lot of attractive women out there that I don't think I could probably just pull if I was able-bodied, as good-looking as I am, that are incredibly attracted to the outgoing guy in the wheelchair on the dance floor. It has played out. Yeah, I've seen it. I know. Have you ever had a girlfriend? I have not. Do you want to have a girlfriend? I'm at this stage in my life now that if it happens, it happens. But at 27, I'm not really even thinking about settling into anything serious or looking for anything serious until I'm 30, which may seem late to a lot of people, but it's just kind of my mindset. And I think if I was to pursue a relationship, relationship at this time, I'm at the age where you have to be thinking more of long term. You're not into those three, six months, you know, you know, when you're younger and everything and not really getting to the setup of your life. For now, I'm happy as is. So we're going to take a break. And when we get back, we're going to hear how Brian approaches online dating. And we're going to hear what he's comfortable sharing about his sex life.
And we're back with friends, Luke and Brian, who are clearly trying to be super adult for this. But then there are moments like this. It's the first thing you would want somebody to know about you if you were seeking a partnership. That's not my leg. That's my dick. Oh, my God. That is not what I was looking for. (laughs) That is a good line, though. Uh, Hasn't probably ever worked on anybody, but it does get laughs. So we're going to listen to the rest of their interview. When Brian first started online dating, he used a lot of close-cropped photos. He left his wheelchair mostly out of the process. But since then, he's become more comfortable making a joke about it right there in the bio. This is a lame one that I don't think I've ever used, but it's just as an example, you know, I might put something like, let's go for a walk and roll, you know, instead of rock and roll. In fact, one that I know that I have used is, I don't actually need the wheelchair. I just get the right amount of attention with it or something like that. I haven't personally seen much success on the dating apps or anything like that. You know, dating apps and the swipe left and swipe left is inherently a pretty superficial concept and everything, despite how good I look. One thing that I'd wanted to bring up was the time that you used someone else's profile. Oh, when I started catfishing people? Catfishing, that was the term. I couldn't remember. Exactly. So, um, you know, having only done my uh, dating profile on Tinder or whatnot, I was interested in seeing exactly how well, you know, somebody that really was able-bodied would do on dating apps compared to myself, not just hearing stories from friends here or there. Essentially, putting my life story, not my life story, but, you know, who I am and everything like that, you know, the written part of your profile along with, you know, pictures of an able-bodied person. And, and this dude, this guy is particularly good-looking, I will say. He was. He's but, not, I mean, I would say I'm particularly good-looking in my own perspective. But sure. no, he was particularly good-looking. It was one of those situations where it was, you know, you get on Facebook and you find a friend of a friend of a friend or something like that, and you pull the four or so pictures that you need and, It's pretty easy to catfish somebody nowadays. It was a science experiment. That's how you did it? I didn't know that. Exactly. It's a science experiment, you know? So you have to have real photos. You can't just have pictures, stock images from online. You know, I did that, and it was one of those things where, you know, if you just swipe right on the girls or anything like that, I had a lot more swipes than, or, you know, connections made than whether my disability was prominent or not. So it was just kind of an eye-opener. Yeah, what do you what did you take from that experience other than the dating apps suck? <laughs> I mean, dating apps suck in general, right? We've discussed this, but I think it just confirmed what everybody knows is that dating apps are a very superficial platform, right? Yeah. So, uh well, and who knows, maybe there's someone out there listening to this podcast who says, "Man, this guy sounds dope." There you go. Finds you on Facebook. Stranger connections have happened. Just look for the bald guy in the wheelchair on Facebook with my name, and there he'll be. There I'll be. Nice. Or we are happy to connect you guys. Just send a note to YOY at panoply.fm. Are you willing to talk about the closest you've come? Have you? Can you have sex? Yeah. Have you had sex? Mm-hmm. Are you willing to talk about? You want to talk about experience? Uh, 
Yeah. In general. Yeah, if you're up for it. I don't want to be the guy that kisses and tells, right? So well, we'll go general. I mean, you know, it. Uh, there are hookups. There are times where it, you know, is a active, you know, action or discussion. I don't know. Discussion sounds very star- sterile, but uh, you know how these things happen. And um, you know, usually they're with people that I, you know, know to a degree, and they know how I move and everything, and how I can't do. So you know. It just depends on the positioning that you do. Uh, some things are a little bit more involved. Um, but, you know, I can just lay there and let it happen. Uh, or we can, you know, maneuver differently and make that work too. So, so I mean, you have to – typically you would have to, like, ask them to help get you out of your chair. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, in some ways you – I guess this is a question because you require some aid in like the mornings and night stuff, like getting dressed, taking a shower. Do you think you're more comfortable with those kinds of like, that's a pretty intimate experience, right? Right. That you have had to share with a lot of people. Oh yeah. Does that make you more comfortable in those settings? Um, Are you comfortable asking somebody that you're, you know, in an intimate setting with to like, pick you up out of your chair and put you on the bed? Is that an easy I mean, thing those to... kind of maneuvers, as you know, you have experienced and everything, those are pretty easy maneuvers to do. It just wait, really wait, takes... wait. Which kind of maneuvers? <laughs> you know, the ones where you get behind me. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, no, but the maneuvers to uh, transfer, you know, from my wheelchair to the bed or wherever, you know, the couch or anything, those are all relatively easy, you know, where I kind of just get lifted and slid over or something like that, so... They're you know, easy, those aren't, they're easy. I mean, if you're into the, you know, mode of, you know, we're going to have sex or anything like that, the two parties are both motivated. So it's not too easy. To, it's not too hard to convince somebody to, to go with that. Is that a pun? <laughs> yeah, Absolutely. I guess where there's a will, there's a way is, the, yeah. is kind of the point there. Absolutely. Well, that's cool. In other words, I have never really had difficulty with it. You know, it, it I'm not hooking up, you know, every night with some different person, but uh, in my, you know, intercourses, so to speak, it's never been a problem. You know, it may not be as frequent and it uh, is not for everyone and anyone, but I found a way to make it work. Yeah. Well, as someone who very strongly supports you getting every hope and desire that your heart wishes for I said that really poorly as somebody who supports you getting everything I all desire. your heart's desires yeah I want to know what I could do to be a better wingman or to help you find that dream girl if well, anything you could not go to Columbia or Massachusetts or California all the time that would be beneficial but uh you know I think it's it's again just uh as somebody with a disability, getting yourself out there in the social situations that anybody gets themselves in, you know, naturally those conversations come about and people seeing you out there and doing things that anybody else would do, you know, in your age group and whatnot, um, that puts you out there and makes you, you know, people think like, oh, well, he can do this, he can probably do that and that and whatnot. Um, And so, you know, a lot of it is 
just having friends that want to go out and do things. I'm a very outgoing social person that likes doing stuff. You got to have friends that don't just like to sit home and knit every Friday night or watch Netflix, which, you know, I don't knit, but I do watch Netflix. Uh, I don't knit every Friday. You do knit, don't you? Every other Friday. Exactly. So, but it's just, you know, putting yourself out there and letting things happen. I mean, and that's advice that you would give anybody looking to find somebody to be with, hook up with somebody this way or that way, you know, do something serious or do a one night stand, you know, just put yourself out there. It's having that community of people that are just pushing you. Yeah. Challenging you. Which I think you do. I think I do for you too. And how am I as a wingman? Hmm. I don't know. You've been gone for some time now. I I found people to replace when you were here. How was I? And you did pretty well. You can be brutally. I, I wouldn't say any direct hookup has uh, been a result of you going out. Usually, just because that's a question of who's more fucked up when we go out. But you and I do have a lot of fun together, and we go out and do those things. I think we both empower ourselves to do more than we might do independently. How important is it to you that you find a long-term partner at some point in time? I think it's important. It's not something. I'm necessarily worried about at this time. It's certainly something that I would like to get married and have a family and, you know, continue on those lines. That's definitely my future. But I think just like everything else, things have just kind of come at the time that they come in my life. Uh, no, <laughs> no pun intended. Oh, um, I know. Oh, uh, man. We could really, I don't know how bad this conversation can get. And still be online. Oh, whatnot, yeah, as bad but, as you wanted to. Uh, but yeah, lots of puns there. But no, I mean, everything has always eventually worked out in my life the way I've planned it to work. Whether that's, you know, when I was 16, figuring a way out for me to drive a car. You know, that worked. It was a little bit more of a roundabout process, and it took a little longer to figure things out. But that worked. Going off to college and living independently. You know, before I went to college, I relied on you know, my parents, my siblings, and, you know, close family friends or friends to help me with, you know, my daily routine and personal care and had no experience having a personal care team, really, of staff that I interviewed and hired and trained and scheduled on my own as, you know, 18 years old going off to college. But I went in cold and just did it. Did you guys hear that? I think it's optimism. While this interview was going on in St. Louis, I was listening in from our studios in Brooklyn, and I was just fuming with jealousy over this, over Brian's healthy approach to dating. He believes that you should go out more, that you should make sure you have a wingman who brings out your adventurous side. My strategy has just been throwing my phone across the room and tweeting the crying face emoji every Saturday night. But Brian's optimistic. He has to be. I don't know if that's just uh, how I was raised in my family or the, you know, things that I've had to deal with having a disability in my life, but truly it has always been one of the cases of, you know, it will work out one way or another. And for the most part in my life, that has been true. So I guess I'm blessed in that way. Thanks so much to Luke and Brian for sharing this conversation with our show. And since their chat, I still find myself repeating this to myself many times throughout the day. It will work out one way or another, and for the most part in my life, that has been true. 
right? So good. Luke Terrell's documentary feature, Gabe, is currently looking for distribution. To learn more, visit their website, thegabedoc.com, or follow the film on Facebook at facebook.com slash thegabedoc. We're going to be right back with another blind Skype date. This one, it breaks the mold. Okay, so here we go again. And this blind Skype date, not so blind. Hi, how are you? Good. I'm uh, I'm Mackenzie, and I know more, I think, about you than you do about me, just because I heard you call in. Mackenzie sent us an email after she heard Nick on our ghosting episode. He was the guy who got ghosted by the same woman twice. I was frustrated, but I kind of just chalked it up to, hey, this happens, whatever. Like, it's all part of the game. Something in Nick's voice piqued her interest. Plus, she heard he lives in Minneapolis, and that's actually where she's moving to next month. So we ask our daters to come up with questions before their dates. And this first one really showcases their Minnesota side. What is your favorite winter sport? Cross-country skiing. Oh, what what kind of cross-country skiing? I am much better at the classic style than the skate style. <laughs> but I haven't been in a while, and I'm like, I think that'll be a thing for this winter is to get back out there. Yeah, I've started a list of things that I'm going to do this winter to like stay active and meet people, and that's one of the things is cross-country skiing. Yeah. What, what is your favorite winter sport? Cross-country skiing. Oh, oh, yeah. oh, okay. Well, yes. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, first time you fell in love. When was that? I you know. said I've been in love. Oh, it's a good answer. Um, no, I believe I've been in love. When, when was it? College. College. I was young. I was in love and um, wasn't a great match, but we were really into each other. So. No. How about you? Mine was high school. One of those high school relationships that sort of like went over into college a little bit and then into that confusing muck of what is this? And then uh, like, you were one of those people that thought the relationship could survive into college. Yeah. Yeah. Did you break up at Thanksgiving? No, no. We kind of like stumbled along until eventually it was just like, we just had this huge falling out. Yeah. It, I was like, uh, it ended and it's like, okay, uh, there's like this idealistic notion that maybe takes up too much of how you think of love and you probably should push that back a little bit. And, uh, mm-hmm. so yeah, it ended, but you know, moved on a while ago. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, we've been talking for a bit. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you think it's going? I, I think it's good. I'm I'm definitely like feel a little more nervous than I usually am on first dates, mainly because okay. recording and yeah, <laughs> I guess. But it's good. Yeah, yeah. You seem pretty cool. And uh, okay, you seem pretty cool too. I mean, I even put cologne on for a <laughs> Skype date. And I was just like, oh, I can tell. I can tell. <laughs> I was getting that vibe, yeah, through the computer. Um, 
Okay, so I know this is kind of an odd situation because I'm not, we're not going to actually be in the same place for six weeks, but... Um... So this is where our dates typically exchange phone numbers, but instead, Nick said... Email? Is email good? Oh, Nick. I don't find email to be very efficient mm-hmm. for social things. Yeah, um, yeah. How, I mean, how about text? Unless that's too far, that's too advanced for you. I definitely express myself a little bit better when I write. And uh-huh. and then, yeah, we can we move on from there or. <laughs> okay, okay. That date seemed like it was going so well, but the end was awkward. The day after we taped this, Nick sent us an update. He said that they did get back on Skype, as Mackenzie's idea, and they talked for another hour. By then, they were ready to exchange phone numbers, and they've been Skyping and texting for the last week or so. Nick says it's pretty likely that they're going to meet up when she comes to Minnesota. Our show is produced by me, Andrea Salenzi, with Lindsay Cradwell. I am on Twitter and Instagram at my full name, Andrea Salenzi. And there, I'm sharing lots of screenshots from my attempts at online dating. You can follow me, Andrea Salenzi, S-I-L-E-N-Z-I. Our editor is Hilary Frank. Our artwork changes every week thanks to Teddy Blanks at Chips.nyc. And our theme music is by Andy Miklas, Casey Holford, Lee Rosphere, and Evan Viola. Special thanks to Mia LaBelle and Andy Bowers at Panoply. Next time on YOY, a showdown. Texting versus emailing who will win email is email good i sure sure well, I, I say let's we can are, are you a person who likes to like emails or like i don't find email to be very efficient mm-hmm. for social things <laughs>